Hello and welcome to a very frosty episode of The Europeans. Coming to you from an incredibly cold Amsterdam, where I am, and I think a slightly milder, slushier Paris. Yeah, it is milder and slushier. But over there, I hear you're all obsessed with whether the canals are going to freeze over so that you can skate on them. Yeah, it's true. Um, Well, it's been 24 years since this legendary 11-city ice skating tour has been able to take place because the canals haven't frozen over enough. Hashtag global warming. There's complete Elfstedentocht mania in the country at the moment. And yet, officially, it's not meant to go ahead because of the dreaded C word. I saw that the prime minister said, like, can you all please try not to fall over on the ice and get hurt? Because the hospitals really don't need that right now. Yes, be careful out there, Dutch people. And everyone else in icy places. We sadly didn't get any of the orange sky phenomenon, which looked beautiful in other parts of the continent when the Sahara sand was coming over attached to the snow. Beautiful or post-apocalyptic? Or pre-apocalyptic? Maybe both. Can't we have both? Dystopian movies are beautiful sometimes. Anyway, I wanted to ask you about some news I read this week before we get into the Mm. rest of the episode that sounds like it might make a pretty significant bearing on your working life. If I understand it correctly... The French Labour Ministry have relaxed their labour codes and you are now allowed to eat lunch or dinner at your desk whilst working. (laughs) Is that true? Well, this is the thing. Um, I don't know if I should be confessing this on a podcast, but I was blissfully ignorant about the fact that this was illegal and I have been merrily breaking the law for years in France and eating my lunch out of a very sad plastic box at my desk, much to the disgust of my former boss, Fabien. I don't do it all the time. And like the canteen is really like one of my favorite French institutions. Like I love the office canteen and most people do go there. But yeah, I mean, like sometimes you're busy and you haven't got time for a leisurely trip to the canteen with your colleagues. So I've been eating out of my sad plastic box illegally. Can you believe it? Do you now look back at these like rude looks you got from all your French (laughs) colleagues and they were actually judging you because you're breaking the law? Calling the police under their desk. Yeah, probably. Um, But yeah, it's really interesting. It's yet another cultural shift forced by COVID-19. The end of the leisurely French lunch break, perhaps. I don't know. I think probably when this is all over, the canteen will return with full force. But yeah, for now, the idea is apparently to reduce the need for people to spread COVID around the canteen, I guess. Uh, And the nation is shaken by it. Big changes. So what are we actually talking about this week, apart from the weather and lunch? Well, this week we're going to be talking about eels and how our guest, the Swedish writer Patrick Svensson, wrote a surprise international bestseller after exploring the history of our obsession with these incredibly mysterious, unknowable creatures. A book that rather beautifully and originally also happens to be about his relationship with his own father. But it's still a book about eels. Does that sound difficult to understand? (laughs) Makes complete sense. Patrick explains it much better than I do, and he'll be here later on in the show. But first... Who's had a bad week? Well, both good and bad week are kind of connected to the world of cinema and theatre this week. For bad week, we are going to the Balkans. And just to warn you, this story does involve rape and sexual assault. So if that's something that you don't want to hear right now, please do skip forward about five minutes. But yeah, it's been a bad week in the Balkans for men who abuse women. There's been this huge outpouring really across the Western Balkans, uh, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, of women coming forward to tell their stories of being raped and sexually assaulted. 
this will, of course, sound familiar to lots of you in other parts of Europe and the world that have seen their own local versions of this. The Me Too movement in the English-speaking world, Balance d'Empor in France or Quelle Voltaque in Italy. Uh, and the latest version in the Balkans, it is kind of like the Me Too movement in the United States in that it started in the entertainment industry. A Serbian actor called Milena Radulovic, she's pretty well known, she came forward in a magazine interview in January to tell the world that she was raped repeatedly by Mika Aleksic, this famous director and acting teacher in Serbia. And Milena was underage at the time. She was only 17. Aleksic has since been arrested on the basis of her testimony and that of other students at their drama school, although he denies the allegations. And over the past couple of weeks, the movement has just kind of snowballed. Uh, in Bosnia, there's a Facebook group called Nisam Trajila, or I Didn't Ask For It. Uh, that one was also started by women in the performing arts kind of drama sector. And about 40,000 women have joined this Facebook group. And there's just been this astonishing outpouring of messages from women all across the region saying, yeah, me too. This happened to me too. Um, and finally, over in Greece, really over the past week or so, there's also been a massive surge in people talking about sexual abuse. In this case, it was Sofia Bekatoru, the Olympic sailing champion, who said, this happened to me. It was a senior sailing official. He abused me when I was 21. And we really need to talk about this. And now loads of Greek women in lots of different industries, sports, entertainment, journalism, they're coming forward with similar stories. And just a couple of days ago, three really high profile Greek actors and TV stars lost their jobs over this scandal. How are the general public reacting to this across the Balkans? A bit of a mixture, I think. There have been quite a few online movements like this in the Balkans over the past few years, but on quite a small scale. And lots of women's rights activists who I've been reading interviews with, they say it's still pretty taboo to talk about this kind of assault publicly in the Balkans, which I think makes it especially brave for all these women to come forward. So even though it is incredibly grim, the fact that women have told all these stories publicly and feel like they can do that now, there is something hopeful in that, I think. Apparently, when Milena Radulovic started this whole thing in January, when she publicly accused this famous director of rape, the public reaction was quite negative. A lot of people were posting on social media saying, like, well, she's an actress. What does she expect would happen? Oof. Which seems crazy to me. And activists say that the problem runs really deep because conviction rates for rape and sexual assault in the region are really, really low. And people don't trust institutions enough often to report these crimes a lot of the time. But we are starting to see change coming out of this already. So since Milena started this whole thing in January in Serbia, a bunch of public institutions across the Balkans, at schools, universities, state parliaments, loads of them have started setting up boards where people can report sexual abuse or violence. And that, I think, is a really good sign. Uh, so it's been a bad week for powerful men who have been horribly abusing their positions, but uh, a good week, I think, actually, for brave women in the Balkans. Let's hope things change a bit. Who's had a good week? It has been a good week for the visibility of LGBTQI people in Germany after 185 actors came out en masse and published a manifesto in the newspaper supplement, the Süddeutsche Zeitung magazine, using the hashtag ActOut. These actors all decided to come out together with a public statement in order to achieve visibility and it's received a lot of attention in the press, both nationally and internationally. Six of the actors were interviewed in the magazine and shared some of their personal experiences, which 
range from actors being told by directors to play more straight, being advised by agents to keep their sexuality or gender identity secret mm. so they don't lose work, and even being told not to arrive on a red carpet with their partner so that people don't realize they're gay and then stop casting them in straight roles. Ugh, that's horrible. Yeah, and career difficulties for LGBTQI actors have been a discussion for quite a long time now um, across much of the continent and also, of course, in Hollywood. But this action from the 185 actors in Germany is essentially them saying, enough now, we're here, it's time to do something about it and make things better. So what are the main points in their kind of manifesto? Well, their main statement is that they no longer want to have to keep quiet about their sexual orientations and gender identities to avoid jeopardizing their careers. And they have two connected arguments. Firstly, that they are actors, so their private lives should not affect who they can portray or how they act. Yeah. Acting is pretending to be other people. Actors don't need to be the people they are portraying. They say, we play murderers without having murdered anyone. <laughs> or do they? <laughs> we can save lives without having studied medicine. We can play people with sexual identities different from the ones we live out. In addition to this, they say that the lived social reality of Germany is becoming more and more diverse and that film and TV has been particularly slow to show this broader range of diverse stories to the public on screen. So that's their other point. They want people to start commissioning a wider range of stories. And they stress that they are not a homogenous group. They are people who grew up in very different places with very different backgrounds and experiences. There are some household names on the list, like Karen Hanchewski from Tatort and Udo Samuel from Babylon Berlin. But there are also lots of newcomers who the German public probably don't know about yet. And I think that's nice that they have a mix of both. Hmm. They stress that not everyone on the list is coming out for the first time. Some of them bravely made their decision earlier on. But for others, this letter is actually their coming out moment. And for those people... Yeah, it's a very brave and powerful way to do it. Yeah, it's really amazing to see. Can I ask you a personal question? Shoot. You are also a gay man working in not theatre, but like entertainment uh, or the opera world. What has it been like for you in terms of the attitudes towards LGBT people? Yeah, that's a complicated question. I have to say I found this quite a moving thing that these actors are doing. I spent a lot of my 20s trying to work out how to imitate straight men on stage. And that's partly because almost all of the characters in the mainstream opera repertoire are macho, heterosexual men. Mm. And in opera, it's kind of in some ways even more extreme because you are attached to a voice type and I'm a baritone. And the baritones are often in traditional repertoire figures like kings or counts or father figures. And of course, many cisgendered straight men look and move more like what you'd expect a count or a king to move or look like than um, a young gay man like me. And they therefore have somewhat of an advantage when stepping into an audition. In my experience, this is changing a bit and directors and casting directors are being a bit more open-minded and imaginative about how gender can be expressed on stage even when you're being a king but for me yeah it's also just been a personal process that I eventually decided I didn't want to hide my sexuality from the people I was working with and if a director looked at me differently because I was gay then I didn't want to work with them anyway and it's also one of the main reasons why in my career I have now mainly ended up doing contemporary opera because in this more niche arty scene 
there's more work that comes out that has more diverse characters, uh, an exciting range of characters, some of whom are closer to my lived reality, some of whom aren't anything like me, but at least aren't just this one like macho archetype. I thought that role where you were playing a sort of giant sea creature was particularly like you. Thank you. Oh, I feel really seen. Um, (laughs) Not in like sexuality or gender identity, just like in general sliminess. Oh, I actually took it as a compliment initially and now I'm really hurt. But one more thing, it also makes me really sad that um, the theatre and opera world and the profession of acting more generally is it's often seen as a like safe haven or Valhalla for a lot of young LGBTQ people who are looking for a place where they think they'll be accepted. And it's really heartbreaking that still to this day, the industry often doesn't live up to that dream mm. and that straight people in general still have an advantage over their queer counterparts. But, yeah, I'm really encouraged by this move from the 185 German actors. So, yeah, good week to them. We have a bumper crop of new supporters to thank this week. Are you ready? Go on. Big thanks go to... (gasps) Deep breath. Catherine Lorix, Gemma Sharp, Tiffen DRT, Marcus Lauer, Andrea Lascu and Jessica Parton. These lovely people are the six latest extremely generous people to help uh, keep this podcast alive, basically, uh, by chipping into our fund on Patreon. What is Patreon, Dominic? Patreon is a kind of uh, subscription service where you can support independent makers who are making things that you like and just give them a bit of money in the tip jar. You can give as little as $2 or euros or pounds a month and then you get uh, access to our amazing Facebook group. I know no one says, no one cool says that anything on Facebook is amazing anymore. But it really is. It's a lovely group. And uh, you can pay a bit more and get a postcard from us or a voicemail, personalised voicemail. People seem to like them. Mm. I don't know why. But head to (laughs) patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast and join this gang and help us out a bit to keep going. Join us. We'd be very grateful. Eels. 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 I am newly obsessed with eels after devouring Patrick Svensson's lovely book. Me too. I ate it up like a giant European conger. That's the largest eel in the world. I looked it up. How big is it? Giant European conger. It can weigh... Up to 72 kilos, which is like as much as a woman. (laughs) That's kind of crazy. They're massive. Anyway, I digress. Uh, A week ago, I knew nothing about eels. Now I know lots about eels, thanks to this uh, excellent book, The Gospel of the Eels. In 2019, it won the August Prize, Sweden's most prestigious literary prize. And it has been a huge hit over there in Patrick's home country and indeed beyond Swedish borders. But I think Patrick would be the first person to admit that eels are not necessarily the most obvious topic for a smash hit book that has taken the literary world by storm. So we wanted to ask him about why he thinks this book has been such a hit uh, and in general to get an introduction to the weird and wonderful world of eels. So we rang him up at home in Malmö. How did you, someone who isn't a scientist, you're a cultural critic, in fact, how did you end up writing a book about eels? I spent my whole childhood fishing for eels with my father. And uh, it was something that became very important for us, for our uh, relationship. And uh, it was always just me and him down by this uh, river, late summer nights and... um, The eel fishing was something that brought me and my father together. In that way, it became very important. 
it was also those nights down by the river that my father told me about the eel, that uh, it's quite a remarkable animal, actually. And he told me about the, the Sargasso Sea and um, all these mysterious things about the eel. So I guess my fascination started uh, already there. From your book, I have learned many, many fascinating and mysterious things about these wonderful creatures. But one of these things that I learned is that Sigmund Freud spent quite a while in Italy cutting up eels and looking for testicles. Like, <laughs> just why? Like, what happened? That's why I think the eel is such a good subject to write about science, about knowledge and about people and how knowledge starts, you know. When I wrote about the eel, I was like... I understood that I wasn't just going to ask the question, what do we know about the eels? But when I asked the question, how do we know the things we know? That's when I found all these stories and all these characters. The scientific history about the eel is full of great stories and great characters. As you said, there's Sigmund Freud, a young Sigmund Freud who was on his first scientific mission. He was trying to prove that the eel has sexual differences, that there are male and females. And he was going to do this by finding the eel testicle. So he spent around a month cutting up eels, trying to find this eel testicle. And he studied more than 400 eels. And of course, he didn't find one. Not one single small eel testicle did he find. And uh, maybe that's why he went on to, you know, try to understand the human sexuality instead of a fish I mean, it, there's still quite a lot of mystery around how eels reproduce. I mean, we know a bit more than we did when Freud was cutting them open. There have been some other great theories in your book. I personally love the idea, the British idea, that eels were born when hairs of horses' tails fell in the water. Why has it been quite so difficult to work out how they reproduce? It's because the eel makes it hard for us to understand it. Because every eel is born in the Sagasso Sea in the western part of the Atlantic. They float over the whole ocean to Europe. And then they live all their lives in freshwater in Europe. It could be a very long life. It could be up to 40, 50 years. But then suddenly it gets this urge to go back where it came from, to reproduce. And on its way back to the Sagasso Sea, that's when the eel gets sexually mature. So they don't have any sexual organs until that time. So when you study an eel in Europe, trying to find the sexual organs, trying to find an eel testicle like Sigmund Freud, you don't find any. And that's why it has been so hard for people to explain the eel reproduction. And instead, there has been all these fantastic theories about eel being born out of nothing, being born out of mud, or being born out of uh, hairs from horses, and all these fantastic theories. We know they go on this epic migration every year. They also go through all these crazy transformations as animals during this migration. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the eel goes through what we call metamorphosis. It's born like as a small larva in the Sagasso Sea. It's almost transparent and looks like a small uh, willow leaf. And then it, when it gets to the European borders, it transforms into what we call a glass eel, also almost transparent. And the glass eel is moving into freshwater, rivers or lakes, and transforms again into what we call yellow eel. And then the yellow eel is the one that lives all its life in fresh waters, a very long life. But when it has to return to the Sagasso Sea, 
it transforms for the last time and it, it becomes what we call the silver eel. That's when it completely stops eating. It develops the sexual organs and it travels all the way back over the Atlantic Ocean without eating at all. Then it disappears in the depths of the Sagasu Sea and um, it reproduces and then it dies. And that's the eel life cycle. And that's a uh, pretty good story in itself, I think. I quite liked the uh, anecdote in your book about this distinction between what makes an eel an American eel or a European eel. And that some of the American eels, they're the stronger eels, probably, that managed to break out of the current. And as a podcast about Europe, I thought there could be some, I don't know, larger um, analogy there. <laughs> Do you think we should make an entire mini-series about it, Dominic? Yes. That's one of the mysteries that remains, because the American eel and the European eel, that's two different species, but they are born on the same place, in the Sagasso Sea. And then they float with the big ocean currents. They float together for a time, and then suddenly the American eel starts to swim uh, west to America, and the European eel follow the currents all the way to Europe. And that's just like, how do they know where to go? Then the theory is that the American eel is growing faster and becomes stronger, so it has the ability to leave the current, but still somewhat of a mystery. So they're born in the Sargasso Sea? Yeah. And yet, am I right in thinking that no one's actually seen an eel there? Exactly. You have to ask, how do we know the things we know? That's when you find the great stories. And one of those stories is, how do we know that all eels are born in the Sargasso Sea? And we know that because there was a Danish scientist called Johannes Schmidt. In the beginning of the 20th century, he was trying to find the eel birthplace. And he had a method. He went out on the Atlantic Ocean with a boat and he caught these small larvas that are the first stage for the eel. When he found a place where these larvae were the smallest, that's the place where the eel must be born. And it took him almost 20 years sailing around the Atlantic Ocean, catching small eels before he found a place where they were just very, very small. And he could uh, pinpoint the map and say, this, this is where it happens. This is where the eel is born. And that was the Sagasso Sea. But still today, no human has ever seen eel reproduce. And no human has ever seen eels in the Sagasso Sea, alive or dead. All we have seen are these small larvas. That's one, another one of those mysteries that still remains. It's so wild, isn't it? You think in an era of all these very fancy nature documentaries made by the BBC and other broadcasters, mm. like why is that sea not just full of cameras observing the whole thing all the time? Just to, just to know, just to witness it. There's been a lot of expeditions trying to just get a glimpse of an eel in the Sagasso Sea, and they used a lot of instrument, acoustic instruments and fishing gear. And they also put small uh, transmitters on eels, trying to track them all the way to the Sagasso Sea. None of this has worked so far. Another mystery, perhaps, is the fact that the eel is dying out at an alarming rate. How much do we know about why this is happening? When you're, you want to study how well a species is, the usual method is to count the number of individuals in their uh, reproductive area. So you had to count eels in the Sagasso Sea. And that's a little bit difficult, as you understand. But when counting the glass eels that returns from the Sagasso Sea to Europe, they found out that the number of eels has gone down with 
more than 95% since the 70s. That's the big eel question today. Why do they disappear? And there are a lot of um, answers to that, but we still don't know what's the biggest problem. We know that fishing is a problem, of course, and pollution is a problem. And the water power plant is a big problem because it stops the eel from migrating. Uh, There's new diseases and also the climate change in itself is a problem because it affects the ocean currents and makes it hard for the eel uh, migration. As you mentioned earlier, your relationship with eels is also to do with the relationship with your father. And your father is very present in this book. Um, And for people who haven't read it, it might sound kind of strange that this is a book about eels that's also a book about your father. But yeah, it, it really makes sense. I was wondering, did it take you a while to get to that point to realize that you could write a book that was about both? And did you have to convince publishers that this was something that was going to work? I didn't know if, if you could write a book like that, mixing uh, natural science and history with personal uh, anecdotes from my childhood. But um, After a while, I thought I found out that there was something that connected these two stories. And the mystery is a big part of it. You know, the eel is a mystery in a scientific sense that still after all these years of research, there's so much we really don't know about it. But every human being is a mystery in some kind of psychological sense. You know, there are always limitations in our uh, understanding of uh, another person. And I thought I could use the mysteries in the natural world to also say something about the mysteries we deal with in our families, in our relationships with other people. You have described your book as a nerdy book, and I know you didn't expect it to receive anything like the success that it did. And yet it's been a bestseller. It's won your country's best literary prize. Why do you think it has captivated people so much? I think there's something about the history of natural science that uh, people are interested in. When you can make the scientific history, when you can find the stories and the great characters, then it's very, very interesting. I also think that people are tending to be more and more interested in nature because the threat against nature. So I guess that's something that's a part of it too. Thank you so much to Patrick Svensson for talking to us. Go read The Gospel of the Eels if you haven't already. You won't regret it. Dominic and I have both been enjoying it greatly. And that takes us slithering seamlessly into isolation inspiration. Was that too horrible? Oh, well, I've said it now. What have you been watching this week, Dominic? And I assume it's watching, you teleaddict. Well, actually, I'm going to recommend something that is coming up, which I haven't actually seen yet. Okay. Because it's a live stream. It's a one-off. Um, it's very pan-European and something that I think will appeal to many of our listeners. Yeah, it's quite out there. It's a conceptual piece of dance based on the words of Greta Thunberg. Okay. So the German choreographer Nicole Beutler, who, full disclosure, I have worked with in the past and who I think is a total genius, she has created a danced manifesto using a speech by Greta in collaboration with Swedish dance company Nordance. 
And like most other performances in Europe that were meant to be in person as theatrical experiences, it's going online instead. And the advantage to that is that it can be seen by people all around the world without causing any pollutants uh, into our environment. Well, some, I guess, from using the electricity and the data. Mm-hmm. It can be seen this Thursday, the 11th of Feb at 8 o'clock Central European time. Tickets are 10 euros each, a small contribution that will help these struggling performing arts companies with a bit of cash. I'll be tuning in and I'd love to hear what you think. It's called Our House is on Fire. Sounds depressing, but I'm looking forward to seeing the cool dancing. So that's nice. I imagine it won't be depressing. She makes really joyful work. She was the one who choreographed you as the giant sea creature, wasn't she? No, she wasn't. Okay. I did a show with her about um, masculinity slash climate change. Oh, yeah. That was really fun. And you were like the patriarchy. Yeah, along with seven other men in suits. Perfect role for you. Thank you. Uh, What have you been enjoying this week, Katie? I watched a very enjoyable Italian film on Netflix this week, Rose Island. Have you seen it? Ah, no, but some people on our Patreon group have been recommending it. Yes, and I can't remember who it was. I'm really sorry. I searched on the Facebook group to try and work out who it was that recommended it, and I couldn't find the post. But grazie mille to whoever it was, because I really enjoyed this film. Uh, It's a comedy based on a true story. An absolutely bonkers true story, I might add, and I can't believe I hadn't heard about it before. Uh, But it's about these two engineering graduates in the late 60s who built an offshore platform just off the coast of Rimini, and they declared independence. It's one of those crazy stories about a microstate. But this isn't your average microstate, this steel platform, six kilometers off the Italian coast, because apparently it became this massive magnet for partygoers from all over Europe. And people would just come by boat to get drunk and dance on this platform. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it sounds amazing. Can we go? Not anymore. Uh, Well, I don't want to give any spoilers, but no, we can't go. But anyway, get this as a gesture of their independence from Italy. They declared Esperanto to be their official language on this artificial island in the 60s so it's actually a great film for euro nerds partly because of the esperanto thing but also because the storyline involves the council of europe and i have literally never heard of a comedy that involves the council of europe before that is extraordinary i have to watch this immediately but it's it's not really a nerdy film at all uh, it's really funny it's shot quite stylishly and uh, again it's one of those good movies for a depressing night under curfew uh, so i really recommend it rose island if it's not nerdy then maybe i won't watch it <laughs> For our happy ending this week, there was really only one option. The Hanford Parish Council Zoom meeting. That was so stoically (laughs) overseen by the internet's favourite person this week, Jackie Weaver. I cannot wait for you to explain the Hanford Parish Council to the people of Europe. Yeah, it's actually kind of tricky explaining the parish council system. (laughs) Do you have to? I, I think maybe I do. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. No authority at all. In my online world, this woman, Jackie Weaver, um, who might just have single-handedly saved democracy, has been pretty unavoidable this week. And if you're based in the UK, you've probably long passed peak Jackie Weaver. Um, this this meme has probably passed its expiration date. But I had a look at one of those international trending maps, and actually, she didn't actually trend so strongly on continental Europe. So... I think a lot of us listeners might have no idea what I'm talking about. And therefore, I think it would be best if we just start by playing a a little bit of a clip of this real life parish council meeting on Zoom that went so extraordinarily viral last weekend. Hello again. 
Hello, Evan. I thought I wasn't going to get in then. <laughs> when do we plan to start? Can we be assured that we won't be thrown out of the meeting like we were last time? Um, I, as long as we have reasonable behaviour from everyone, no one would be excluded from the meeting. I, I, was, I was thrown out of the meeting. So was it's only the chairman who can remove people from a meeting. She's just kicked him out. No, she's kicked him out. Don't, don't. She's kicked him out. Don't. They now elect a chairman. No, they can't because the vice chair's here. I take charge. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. So that's just a clip of it. If you haven't watched it all, then just Google the Hanford Parish Council um, immediately after this episode and uh, watch the few minutes of mayhem that is this Zoom meeting. So can you actually explain what a parish council is? Yeah, so it's the lowest tier of local government in the UK. Um, the parish council makes decisions about things like the village hall, the local playground and swimming pools, that kind of thing. And the people who sit on the council are actually volunteers who manage these very local things in their immediate community. And Jackie Weaver doesn't usually sit on these meetings. She was a clerk from the broader association of local councils brought in to help manage the meeting due to some previously also acrimonious meetings. And obviously things quickly escalated with actually quite a lot of horrible aggression towards her and hysteria. I think the amazing thing about this video and the reason why it's gone so viral is just because of how calm she manages to stay in the midst of this madness. Um, I imagine the video made some people really depressed about the awful behaviour of some of the councillors. But for me personally, it really gave me hope that, especially because Jackie Weaver has become such a hero online ever since, and the public has clearly got behind her. Um, yeah, and one thing's for sure, I think we need more Jackie Weavers in this world. There's a message, an inspiring message for all of Europe. Um, this video really made me miss England. Not for good reasons, but just because of the incredible pettiness of everyone in it. Maybe homesick. No. No. We've got to go because we've got a new job to apply for, Dominic. Have we? Yeah, apparently the European Space Agency are recruiting new astronauts. Amongst the general public, it's amazing. And I thought we could sign up. I don't want to, please. We could podcast from space. It'd be fun. You can go and I'll be the person who stays at home. <laughs> and speaks to you. Okay. I mean, we can carry on doing our podcasts over Skype, even if you're in space, I think, can't we? It's true that we've always recorded at a distance. Uh, let's mull it over. If you have a strong opinion on this question of whether Dominic should sign up to join the European Space Agency, let us know on social media. You can find us on Twitter at EuropeansPod, Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, and we're on Facebook under The Europeans Podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode full of both serious and silly stories from the continent. Until then, have a good week, everyone. Daleme. Bye.